Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. It is my pleasure to host a conversation with Dr. Varma Ashish Varma, who's a professor of theology at a Christian liberal arts college. Uh, Dr. Varma, welcome to this podcast with the Center for Asian American Christianity. Thanks, David. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, you and I have spoken before because some of your students have made their way to Princeton Theological Seminary, and you've also contributed to our online magazine. And through those past uh, conversations, I've learned a lot about Indian American Christianity um, through our conversation. So I thought we could use this podcast to dig into Indian American Christian uh, life and even history, but in particular from your experience as an individual. Um, could you share a little bit with our audience some of your family background and history? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm the child of immigrants. Uh, my parents in their mid to late 20s immigrated to Canada and then the United States. Um, I was born right after they moved to the United States, so I was almost a Canuck, didn't quite make it. Um, Where in Canada did they? They immigrated to Winnipeg, or as we delightfully call it, Winterpeg. Seriously, that's that's a really cold area. <laughs> yeah, I, for my life, I can't understand why any Indian born in such a warm climate thinks Winterpeg is a place to go. <laughs> uh, I remember going to visit and asking, "What's that?" Looking at these places where cars are parked in these little boxes with lines coming out and they say, oh, that's to plug your car in so it doesn't freeze to death. (laughs) What an awful place. But I mean, I'm sure it's lovely. (laughs) Uh, That's that's, that's my kind of initial thought of place, just from my great dislike of cold. Mm. Um, Anyway, so when they moved to the States shortly thereafter, I was born in the balmy climate of Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so I, I've spent my life in cold, but not Winnipeg cold, thankfully. Um, yeah, they they were very standard North Indians in a sense. You know, they they took for granted ways of life that to this day, some 45 or so years later, um, it still is remarkable to me that they don't get certain things about Western life. Mm. They, they'll say things or they'll ask questions like, how do you not understand that yet? But I mean, it, when you're deeply formed in a place that is certainly not homogenous, but at least in terms of a general way of life, that's pretty well shared among everybody, you can take things for granted in ways that I don't know that I've had the same experience of here. Uh, but as a result, home life was very, very Indian. Um, I, I've described it as kind of an embalming of 1970s India. Interesting. That's when your folks uh, migrated from India to the to Canada and the U.S. Correct. Yeah. So I, you know, my friends would always gr- growing up at school, they'd always talk about how much they love the Beatles, and I have to confess, I couldn't care less. It's not because of any sort of dislike for them, but what I think I've noticed is they have a nostalgia for the Beatles because, in some sense, that was their parents' music, so they grew up listening to it. I grew up listening to Raj Kapoor. I grew up listening to Jagjit Singh, right in his tabla. Um, and so I've said this to my sister, who sometimes gets annoyed at that music, but I've said, you know, there's something nostalgic for it, 
for me. So when I, I'll turn on Spotify and I'll turn on this 1970s Indian music. And <laughs> so wait, I, your sister's younger? Is your sister younger than you? She's four years younger than me. Yeah. Uh, and has a much her, more her musical taste to didn't swing in the same direction as yours. No, um, you know, I, yeah, not really. So she she likes she's always tended towards more contemporary stuff. She'll listen to much more recent Bollywood stuff versus I'm listening to the old stuff and maybe a little bit of newer stuff. Um, she loves hip hop. Um, I'd rather listen to Nora Jones, you know, in terms of American music. So, I mean, which fits, if you know my sister, um, we couldn't be more polar opposite in some ways. I, our stories are that growing up, I would, I'd get so sick of her talking um, that I actually once when we were driving, we were in a small town and we were driving an hour to this other little bit bigger town that had a mall um, and she wouldn't be quiet. So I finally looked at her and said, I'll pay you $5 to just be quiet for an hour. <laughs> she wouldn't do it. And we got up to $15 and she still wouldn't do it. And then I said, I will empty my account if you give me an hour of quietness. And she stopped. She thought about it. And then she said, no. <laughs> and we've always been, I mean, we're very close, but we've always been very different in personality. Mm. That kind of codifies it. So the fact that our musical interests are very different kind of is part of the game, I guess. Mm -hmm. But that was, you know, home life at the very least, she she has she has acknowledged there's something nostalgic about this other music, this 1970s kind of classical Indian fare. Um, but it wasn't so much that my parents were setting out to try to indoctrinate us, indoctrinate us in terms of the superiority of Raj Kapoor and his movies and his music and, and the music that accompanied it. In fact, I'd say the exact opposite. My father talked frequently about how when they immigrated before they had kids, um, naturally they were gravitating towards Indian communities of immigration, um, like most immigrants tend to do. And the people who were a little bit ahead of them, who had kids going to school where they were only speaking Hindi or Punjabi in the home, were doing very poorly early on in school. And it was just a function, frankly, of not knowing English mm -hmm. or such poor English. And my own father, has talked frequently about how that was one of his biggest challenges um, that while he learned English, he never had to use it really. So he always felt like that put him behind. So for him, especially, but also for my mother, it was this very concerted effort to say, we're not going to speak Hindi in the home with the kids. We're mainly going to speak English. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, that, that formed me, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a strange throwback in the sense of I'm an illiterate Hindi speaker. I, I speak pretty good Hindi, but that's mainly because I, I didn't like that dictate. I didn't like that my cousins spoke Hindi, my uncles, they spoke English as well, but my uncles and aunts only knew Hindi. And I wanted to talk to them. So I forced my mother to speak Hindi with me. So um, your yeah. folks wanted you and your sister to speak English. But they wanted that to be a, our first language. But you had a rebellious streak and wanted to speak Hindi instead? Yeah, yep. <laughs> so, I mean, I think my English is great, right? You go through the American educational system, and it is what it is. I, I've always pointed out that my idioms are terrible. In fact, I was telling this to my class early in the semester, and they started laughing at me 
And I didn't realize that I'd taken two American English idioms and I joined them together in an incoherent way. And I, and so they pointed out and I said, case in point, I've always had trouble with American idioms, even though my English is fine. Um, because for me, well, first of all, my parents didn't know the idioms. But second of all, um, it was really important for me to know Hindi. Um, because I didn't like, you know, it, I just didn't like the, my grandfather's talking to me and my mother's translating. And it wasn't a matter of trust. It was just a matter of, I'm talking to my grandfather. I want to talk to my grandfather, right? So um, I forced her to. Um, my father didn't seem to get that I was doing that because I'd say it wasn't until like a good five or six years ago, my father was still saying things like, well, you don't know Hindi. And I'd respond to him in Hindi. And he would just take that as, well, you just know that one phrase. And then his brother, he, I remember once he was talking to his brother on the phone and I realized it was his brother. So I just said hello from the sidelines, so to speak. And um, his brother said he wanted to talk to me. So we talked and he started in English. I replied in Hindi and I kept replying in Hindi and it turned into an entirely Hindi conversation. And then that was mainly because my dad was right there that I did that. And then <laughs> I handed the phone back to him. I said, are you satisfied? I know Hindi. <laughs> and he says, yeah, your Hindi's gotten pretty good lately. You've been practicing. And I said, actually, my Hindi is pretty rusty right now because I've had no one to practice with. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was the family dynamic, right? That they, so I say all that to say that they really wanted us to be assimilated and enculturated. And I've had mm -hmm. long conversations with them about ways where I respect their desire for assimilation. I get why they wanted to do it. I understand that there were pressures of immigration, but I also want them to understand why it's important for me to break from that assimilative process, you know, and, and in one of those ways, the, the assimilative process was already broken by the things they didn't get, right. That we're not listening to the Beatles. We're listening to Raj Kapoor, you know, I, yeah, go ahead. So I want to pick up the, parental desire for assimilation piece. Yeah. Just going back to their roots in India. And if you said it before, pardon me for asking my asking again, where were you born? So just remind me of where you were born so I could place that. But yeah. parents talk about their wanting English spoken in the, in the household. Did they ever talk about British colonialism? Like back, because that's tied up, tied up with the, the use of the English yeah. language back in India. There are these political, you know, contexts related to um, British Empire. Did that come up as a natural point or not at all in, in, the, in the conversations? It never came out directly. Um, so where I was born first, Hibbing, Minnesota, hometown of Bob Dylan. Two great things came out of Hibbing, Bob Dylan and me. Um, <laughs> that's right. Uh, but anyway, to, to, the, to the bigger question... Um, colonialism would come up, but it never came up as a, let's, let's talk about the colonial past. Um, it would come up perhaps in the, in the context of the great reverence for Mahatma Gandhi, um, or it would come up in the context of something negative, right? And I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of a particular example, but I can think of many moments where my mother would say, those Britishers, and those Britishers was always the beginning of complaint. Right. <laughs> um, and my father, similarly. Uh, but it wasn't a direct, let's talk about it. In fact, it was many, many years before 
the direct talk of colonialism really became a thing, right? So there were, you know, I, as a kid, I didn't realize it was much later that I learned that both sides of my family, if I'm remembering correctly, were, so we're Punjabi. Most of the Punjab is now in what we think of as Pakistan today. Mm-hmm. And so when the Brits gave independence, the day before Indian independence, they carved out a portion that we now think of in Pakistan and gave them independence. And it was important to do that a day early so that they said India can't make claim on Pakistan. Mm. Well, most of the Punjab is in modern day Pakistan. So both sides of my family uh, migrated. So there was mass migration both ways. Many Muslims in what we think of as India today moving to Pakistan, many Punjabi Hindus moving from what we think of as Pakistan to what we think of as India today. So Neither of my parents grew up in the Punjab. They were both born shortly after independence. So independence in 1947. My dad was born in 49, my mom in 50. Um, so my mom's family immigrated to New Delhi, where there was a lot of Punjabis. My father's, my father's father was in the military, a lot of moving around. So he spent a lot of time um, in the villages of Rajasthan, which is adjacent to Delhi. So they were already in kind of different sorts of environments, right? Where it was, um, it it was a displaced environment. So it was like these Punjabi communities within other parts of India that are generally Indian, right? But in terms of specific culture, maybe a little different. Um, I'd say even more so than when we think of the US and when we think of the South versus New England versus the West Coast, where we notice differences. I think the differences in regions of India are more pronounced. So even today, you know, I'll have a cup of chai and um, it's made by someone, made by someone I don't know. And I'll drink it and I'll say, oh, this is really sweet. You must be Gujarati. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you can you can even notice the way in which foods and drinks are flavored and those kinds of ways. So my, I say this to say that my parents grew up in sort of, if you can call it that, many diasporic communities of their own, hmm. um, which were a function of colonialism, mm-hmm. right? And so that those are the contexts within which eventually you start to learn more and more. And then at a certain point, I learn enough that I think, oh, I should ask questions. So then it starts to become explicit conversations. Um, and I won't ever actually forget what was kind of the fire hydrant moment for me, right? It went, we went from the kid with the double consciousness, with the Indian home, with the public life, who is encouraged to assimilate in some ways um, directly, but in other ways, there was an implicit rejection unknowingly of assimilation, right? The fact that we're eating the food we are, the fact that I'm, I want to go listen to the Chicago Bulls game on the radio when Michael Jordan's playing and my dad gets mad at me for abandoning the family 1970s movie night to go do that, right? Um so those sorts of things happen. You go to school, it's easier to be generically American. And as I would eventually come to realize all the ways that those are racialized, right? You end up with what W.E.B. Du Bois called double consciousness. Keep those friends there. Keep these friends here. Um, but eventually you start to have to make explicit decisions, you know, and some of those are, I'm not going to eat Indian food anymore. Um and then eventually you come back to it, right? When you realize how dumb that was and how wonderful the food is, right? But it, w- it was less about the food and it was more about the double consciousness and trying to work that out. So as I'm coming back to it, 
I start to realize I want to have more of what's traditionally me, what I grew up with in my life. Mm-hmm. And in that context, I suddenly come to a moment where my father, um, this is after I become a Christian, my parents are not Christians. Um, and there was a level of, I think hostility is too strong, but antagonism over this Christian thing. I see. Yeah. And so it's within that context that my dad one day says, you know what I see when I see those Jesus fishes on the back of people's cars. And I, I honestly, I don't even know why he brought that up because there were no Jesus fishes in my life, but I knew what he meant. So tell me, what do you mean? Now, whether this is fair or not, this was his perception and it's deeply shaped by colonialism and the way in which Christianity was given to him and the way then that, you know, American Christianity was tied to that for him. He said, I see someone who's going to sue me if I run into them. So I slow down my car. So he saw, you know, a particular kind of conservative values and conservative politics and all tied up in a Jesus fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my water, my fire hydrant, excuse me, moment of realizing, oh my goodness, this is why my Christianity is treated in kind of dis- arms at distant length or, you know, arm- at arm's length. There's my idiom problem again. Uh, arm's length sort of problems, right? Where it wasn't like you're disowned. It wasn't like overt hostility, but it was, you keep that over there. We don't really want it. It was kind of the atmosphere. So at that moment, I began to do more work and trying to understand why it is that that's what my dad sees and hears. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it became a an education in kind of the depths of what one theologian would call the intertwining of missionary, merchant, and soldier um, in the colonial movement, right? And how deeply that was the case in India. Um there were missionaries to India that I, I remember reading about before that, right? Had great reverence for them. So yeah, they're taking Jesus to India. This was great. And suddenly all that became reevaluated as, oh, wow, the context within which you were taking Jesus to India meant that the Jesus that they saw was a particular kind of colonizing or a particular economic Jesus. So those those entered into, now, now I'm doing that research while in grad school, Um and my parents are starting to think, oh, wow, that's what you're studying? And I said, well, that's not actually my studies, but this is my my side hustle, if you will. So then the explicit conversations happen about colonialism. Um, and I, you know, frankly, within that, I see a pretty big change. I mean, this was well over a decade ago. This is, I can't think of how many years ago. It was before I knew my wife and we've been married for 11 years. So however long ago that was. Um, I've seen a massive change in their posture to my faith Hmm. Um, to the point where I've, you know, I've gone through some pretty stressful times in the last half a year to a year. And my father, my not Christian, my relatively unreligious, and even in the Hindu sense, which maybe we can talk about that later as to, you know, Hindu is itself kind of a, a pseudo term of, of colonial imposition already. Um, the guy who would, we would go, we would grow up going to temple to Mandar and he would make a straight line for the cafeteria. That's why he went to Mandar for the food. <laughs> and then the fact that the gods were there was a, like, a, okay, let's also go up and pay our respects compared to my mother who would make a straight line for going to pay respects. Right. I mean, that 
there's a divergence. Well, my father, who is that guy who's going to the cafeteria, going to temple for the food, he sits me down in the midst of this rough season. And he says, um, do you think God doesn't care about you? And I think I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, no, I don't think God doesn't care. Do you think God's angry at you? So I, I don't know. Do you think God is angry at your three-year-old son? I said, no, of course not. Do you think God doesn't know that your three-year-old son needs you to take care of him? So even if he's angry at you, you think he's not going to take care of you? You need to have more faith. Wow. Like, who are you? Where did this come from? Yeah. You know, now I see that as in some ways, by no means putting that on myself, but in some ways that's the fruit of the colonial conversations becoming explicit and the conversations about who Jesus is and Christianity, being able to navigate freely within that so that we can expose a real problem, even as we can recognize hopefully increasingly that that problem doesn't have to be it, right? This this yeah. intertwining of missionary servant or soldier and uh, merchant. So that was a really long answer to what was probably not intended to be that long of an answer. Well, your your thoughtful reflection raises a follow up question that intertwines how you came to Christian faith. So it was implicit in what you said. You mentioned going to graduate school. It sounded like it was in theological studies as a Christian to further explore, explore the intertwining of like European Christian colonialism slash missional missionary activity. So here, here's the question. Did becoming a Christian spawn the development of your consciousness as an Indian American? In other words, were you already wired to be reflective about your Indian American roots prior to becoming a Christian? Or did the Christian faith catalyze deeper reflection about your history? Yeah, great question. Can I say both? I mean, yeah. I, I I can recall moments beforehand where there were already recognitions just based simply on difference. You know, some of them were what I can now call racial recognitions that I wouldn't have at the time. I remember I was in a school that was primarily white and having this moment where I thought, why do I not look like them? And then I thought, Oh, I've got it. I fell into a muddy ditch. Hmm. I got so muddy that it wouldn't wash off, which is itself kind of horrible to realize that, that's the way that I tried to explain it away. And then I thought, what about my parents? Oh, they must've jumped in to get me. The same thing happened to them. Mm. So those, those are pre-Christian sorts of reflections and realizations. I mean, that, that was as a really small child, right? That I'm thinking that way, but the difference was already apparent. The recognition that lives had to be separate was in some sense unintentionally ingrained into me. Um, and I mean that in the sense of we had our Indian community and we would do our Indian functions and we would do our Indian just dinner parties, right? And if you ever saw a person of European descent at one of those, it was always an occasion of something's out of place and not necessarily an elephant in the room in the sense of people being hostile, but in the sense of everyone knew it and 
you knew right away, okay, oh, the reason you're here is because you married an Indian. Oh, I get it now, right? Um, and then there was the times when I was with my school friends who were primarily white. And very rarely was there an Indian in that setting. So those sorts of things were already churning through my head. And then I'd say my early Christian experience honestly exasperated that that distinction. I don't think it catalyzed it in the sense of calling for me to really think through what it meant so much as it, it hastened the pull to assimilate because mm. the Christianity I first knew was, you know, for lack of a better term, a very conservative white Christian faith with conservative white values um, that created again, very odd moments, you know? So I think of one of the, one of the things that my dad and I did as a kid, that was one of our pastimes. We would regularly do it was we would gamble. Um, so we'd play rummy and put money on it, or we'd, he would teach me poker and we'd put money on it. And my dad always cheated. So he always won. And for him, that was partly his desire to say, you, you know, this is the world. You got to catch me, you know? <laughs> so that happened, you know, and then we go to Indian functions and Punjabis love to dance. Now I'm an odd Punjabi where I say the only dancing I want to do is on the tennis or the basketball court, but I recognize it's part of my heritage and you put some good Punjabi music on. And if no one's watching, I'll dance, I'll dance in the kitchen, you know? Um, so two very important things to us. And then I'm in this very conservative Christian environment uh, where I first come to faith and they're, you know, they're having conversations that are themselves embalmed in like 1920s America, but they don't know that. And I don't know that. And so, oh, we could throw alcohol into this. My dad drank. Um, and it wasn't like, it wasn't any overt, overly drinking. He just, he'd have a beer, right? He'd have a glass of wine. Um, but now in this embalmed conservative Christian values, 1920s environment, drinking is bad. It's inherently evil. Gambling is bad. It's inherently evil. I remember, I remember a story being told by an older woman who I actually have deep respect for, but it struck me as odd. She talked about being a college-age student, hopping on a train. She's, she grew up, she was born in the Depression era, very old, um, but hopping on a train across the country. And she got into poker on this train. And then she, she said, I almost gambled. And you could see the horror within herself. She said, from that moment on, I knew I cannot play cards they're wrong. Okay. So drinking is gone. Gambling is gone or playing cards is gone in general. Dancing's gone. Right. Um, the joke that I've heard in some environments is, you know, in that, in, in that, and I don't mean to poke fun at conservative environments, but it really feels like this at times where a couple can't hold hands because holding hands might lead to kissing. You can't kiss because kissing might lead to sex and sex might lead, lead to gasp dancing. <laughs> right? That was very much the environment. Um, yeah. and did I they did, make a movie out of this called Footloose? Or <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> that's the that's uh, yeah, it's the perfect movie for it. Um, but for me, early my early Christian experience catalyzed that I couldn't be Indian. Hmm. Now, and the reason for that is kind of the idealism of these things at play: the, the gambling, the drinking. Um, the other one that I mentioned, whatever, oh, the dancing, um, that were just inherently wrong. 
and totally forgotten that these arrived out of a particular 1920s to 1960s environment and a reaction to certain kinds of things as fundamentalists um, that were in some ways completely irrelevant to the development of our Indian Punjabi background and why these people are dancing and drinking and playing cards. Um, so of course the answer became, well, then that's inherently evil. Don't do it. So that catalyzed my separation from being Indian for a long time until I began to encounter a faith that um, kind of honestly, honestly scoffed at that kind of fundamentalist motif. Mm-hmm but scoffed at it uh, from a different angle as me, right? They're scoffing at it from an angle of, to them that was part of their history and they're coming out of it and they're unhappy with it. And so to them, it's deeply existentially significant to react to it Uh versus for me, it was always something that was kind of laid on top of me, but wasn't existentially something I experienced. I never got it to the core. So for me, it didn't become something to react to so much as to say, oh, I can take that tarp off and move along right um now i think eventually my faith then once i remove that tarp catalyzes me in a different direction and that's the recognition of um this this thing from my father especially but even before that of no my faith shouldn't take me away from being indian um but, you know, again, there's still there was still a split in me that it took a while to get to. And the split was the formal theology born within, again, European context, American context, um, was its own thing. And it's codified to us as this ideal thing. So it's not tied to settings. But then on the it's other side, it's not tied to what? Uh, it's not it's not tied to places or settings. It's just an ideal reality, right? This is the doctrine is just true here, there and everywhere. Um. And then on the other side, the tarp had been removed, so I'd begun to re-explore and re-embrace the food, the music, the language. Um, but the two eventually started to come close together in a way in which um, I actually remember one of the big movements for me in this was a professor who was a Filipino Catholic who made a comment about how he had to basically undo his theological education when he returned to the Philippines because he realized all the conversations were very Western conversations that he was being educated in. And he had to learn what it meant to do that within a Filipino setting. And that was kind of a catalyst for me to begin to say, oh, the the doctrine should in fact be reevaluated to, to, to begin this encounter. So that's where the catalyst happened in a good direction. Go ahead. Oh, this is awesome. There's, there's a lot to unpack here. So let me let me summarize some of the highlights of of the recent part of your narrative. You had mentioned dancing, drinking, and playing cards was part of your Punjabi American cultural background that you especially associated with your dad. Yeah. And then you became a Christian in these conservative Christian uh environments and spaces in which that very same activity was deeply frowned upon and so you had this sort of clash of cultures um the latter christian culture being a kind of tarp that was kind of placed over your punjabi american upbringing culture background and then you would come across 
other Christians who also reacted against the prohibitions against dancing, drinking, and playing cards. Presumably these are liberal, liberal Protestant type of Christians. But you noted that your reaction, sorry, that your response to the drinking, playing cards, and dancing was different from theirs because theirs was a reaction that was grounded in a sort of, this is my language, affinity or like that's part of their history that they're reacting against, but it's not part of your direct history that you're, so there's a similarity in sort of rejection of it, but a dissimilarity with respect to the kinds of motivations given the different histories. Is that is that an accurate uh, summary of what you were narrating? I think so, yeah. I think there was, you could call it existential, you could call it, I mean, whatever it is, it was um, that, that history that they were reacting to, that they felt, I don't think I'd be saying too much or speaking too strongly, their reactions felt like they'd been abused by these sorts of things, these sorts of prohibitions. Um, didn't feel that way personally to me. Um, and at least probably in part because I'd come home and none of that really mattered. If anything, I was just thinking about, okay, what does it mean in this house for me to be a Christian? It's don't go to the cupboard where the gods are and light the candle, you know? Um, these other things just were so off the radar. There was, there was nothing really attached to them in the way that it was to them and kind of these deep traditioned ways that they felt like had abused them. So pick up the narrative, kind of pick up the narrative, especially in terms of your formation as an Indian American Christian. So it, it sounds like you've been doing some soul searching at various stages of your own development intellectually, theologically, spiritually, politically, racial, ethnically. And it, it like, I have some commentary here, but I'm going to try to reserve it as much as I can. But if it, if it comes out naturally, so be it. But it. It does sound like there is this trajectory of your own that is developing that doesn't fit neatly into your dad's trajectory as a as a non-christian indian american or the trajectory of the white christians you've known both conservative and liberal there's something else in formation here that you're beginning to narrate and i, I want to hear more of this yeah that, that's astute i think that's right um because if i can really play on to that that distinction even before we talk about the fact that my my father and my parents aren't christians um I think that that first 27 or so years of formation that has made it so that the next 45 years of their lives, they still have trouble recognizing basic idiomatic things and basic ways in which this American world that they live in works, um, speaks to a kind of formation that's a, it's kind of a setting of a normativity for them that I never had, right? That I got in some sense at home from that, you know, that 1970s bubble. But it wasn't reinforced in everyday life the way it was for them. It wasn't 
you know, when I go to school, when I go to the library, when I go to a friend's house, even if that's all I'm doing, a very different narrative is at play there. But then you've got these Christians who were the ones that I mainly encountered to that point, um, who had their own kind of version of my parents, minus the immigrant story, right? Where there's the normativity of their home and their church life, their school life, their social life, all basically belong to one larger portrait. So I was kind of in, if we, if we want to speak in terms of a painter, I was jumping between two paintings. And as a result, there wasn't really in this, I mean, obviously certain kinds of normativities happened. My basic language of operation in everyday life became English. But even that was um, not fully formed in the same way as I mentioned earlier that I did it in this podcast, but I've done it plenty of times in my life and in this week and, you know, that I struggle with the idioms and not because the idioms are terribly complicated, but they just don't embody me. That's not part of the normativity, right? So, I mean, that shows kind of the separation. And I think the inability of my faith to stay static in that sense is probably a function of that as well, because these doctrines, these theologies, whether conservative or liberal or anything in between, were still formed in places. They still reflected those places. They reflected deliberations and community together that were not my places, not my deliberations. And I think in some ways my body, my, my life was calling false to the idealizing of those things. Um, but neither was it precisely my parents' situation. So yeah, I think the two together really did forge a different path. Um, one that increasingly with maturity enabled me to, to live honestly in both spaces as opposed to dishonestly where I separate them and pretend the one half doesn't exist when I'm in the other. Um, but also honestly brings tensions as well, right? Because sometimes you encounter people who don't want to accept that, right? whether it be on the Indian side, to be Indian means to be this. Well, when you grow up to Indians who were already Indians in this diaspora within a country, and one of them grows up in the biggest city and the other one grows up in the villages, the number of times growing up that I heard some version of the argument of, that's not how Indians do it, where they're not talking to me, they're talking to each other. You know, my mother says that about her urban way and my father says, you think that's India? You think New Delhi is India? You know, those sorts of things. Um, yeah. So I want to pick up the Christian formation, Christian belonging, church life even, so there, and, and or doctrine. So we can, we can shape this part of the conversation practically, socially, in terms of how your Christian faith is embodied in terms of the kind of church space you occupy in the fit of that, you know, belonging or not, or we can begin to theorize it um, theologically in terms of doctrines and what these doctrines, you, you said, um, theology was formal in the sense of not being tied to places and settings. And it sounds like you're beginning to question that formality and beginning to tie it to places and settings. What happens when you begin to tie theology to places and settings? 
Um, and uh -huh. I'd love to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on either the practical or the theological stuff. Yeah, I mean, we could speak on the negative side of people get nervous. Um, unless you want to go that route, I'd rather go to the positive side. Yeah, that's fine. Um, you, whatever you want to, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So on the positive side, I think for me anyway, it's brought a sense of healing, um, a sense that if there's no one way to be Christian in the Bible, I mean, I think about the book of Acts has been so influential on me thinking about the fact that in Acts 2, there are Jews in diaspora who've come together and they're now at the at Pentecost and suddenly the disciples in the upper room, they hear, or sorry, they, they hear the disciples in the upper room speaking, but they hear it in their own tongues, right? Whichever places they came from, which to me is really significant that one of the culminating threads in Acts comes in Acts 15, where Peter says, no Gentiles don't have become Jews because look, we all have the same spirit, the same spirits at work, which to me sounds like what he's saying is there's no mediation. You don't pass through, if you're Gentile, you don't pass through being a Jew. You don't have to become a Jew to become a follower of Jesus. Um, well, similarly, one Gentile doesn't have to follow into the path of another Gentile, right? Or Jew doesn't have to fall into the path of the Gentile, but that the commonality of Jesus is the same spirit who's able to work unmediated in every environment. And the recognition of that or the sense that I could be that, that I could be in fact Indian and experience this, the singular Jesus in that sense, right? That in that, in the sense of speaking of anchors, perhaps, there's your anchor, that Jesus just as Jesus but that his spirit is able to be breathed upon us in a way where I can hear it in Punjabi, right? Whether it be the language or culturally or whatever, but also recognizing that what does it mean to be Punjabi? Does it mean to be a Punjabi pre-partition? Does it mean to be a Punjabi who's currently a Muslim, a Punjabi who's a Sikh, um, you know, a Punjabi in exile, a Punjabi in diaspora? To me, that gave also a sense of calmness that if, if I can't even settle on one way to be Punjabi, it's okay for me to embrace imagining what it might mean to be Punjabi in the United States. And that necessarily entails doing it differently than my cousins. Um, but now I graft upon that, this reality of being in Christ and it's okay. So the same thing is true in Christ that I don't have to simply embrace a particular conservative liberal war that's waged over here for maybe good reasons, maybe bad. And I'll, I'll leave that aside. But that was their war that I'm a spectator to. And I don't have to, I, I have to respect the people, right? But I don't have to pretend that it's it's utterly important that I join that war and their, their conversations. I can begin to imagine. And that, to me, that was healing, right? Because I talked about this double consciousness that had grown and in some ways, my early faith had strengthened the chasm. So it's now, yeah. To clarify, it's healing because you did not have to take a side in the culture wars between different versions of white Christianity. Is is that uh, yeah? Very much so. And and but not not just that I didn't have to take a side in that war, but it also allowed me to begin to to imagine a reality and begin to think about what that would look like for me to not have to live in a way where I pretended I wasn't Indian when I was over here and I pretended, um, or I, you know, I, I didn't have to put aside 
frankly, white doctrine when I'm in this other environment. Um, I could begin to imagine faith that integrates the two and honors that this is the setting I'm in, right? This right. is a place that's forming me. And you're you're justifying this message of healing through Acts 15 and what Pentecost represents, which is that the Christian faith, a faith in Jesus Christ, is translatable. Like literally different languages can confess that Jesus is Lord and attached to these languages are different cultures at the same time. That seems right. to be part of the argument. So let me just back it up a little bit because there was this compounding move in your narrative. You basically gave illustrations that Punjabi identity is, hmm, is has a multiplicity to it. Uh, um, historically, geographically, um, trans-Pacifically, uh, like generationally, there's multiple Punjabi identities from what you were saying, and you don't want to restrict that being uh, being Punjabi is only one thing. No, it's got different manifestations given the dispersal over space and time. So that was one thing I was picking up from you. And then you drew the analogous ar argument, like part of your being part of this complicated Punjabi diaspora is you've already gotten a sense that that part of your identity is not fixed. It is not, it's not a cookie cutter thing. So when you become a Christian, you're already having that experience in your background, which predisposes you to think that Christianity is not a fixed identity either. Right. There's, there's something, right. about, Oh, there's this distanciation between, okay. They say it's not good to play poker. Other people say it's okay to play poker. I already knew that it was okay to play poker. So I already came at this issue with a relative distance based on my prior cultural identity. That's that's the narrative I'm hearing from you is um, your, your experience of identity was already plastic. It was already moldable. It, it was, and I think in that sense, it's why certain shifts or certain recognitions of of finitude, I guess, uh, like like the conversation on drinking and dancing and gambling, didn't hit me personally in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. But I, but at the same time, I I don't want to discount that. Um, at least my early faith was one that was drawn into a particular kind of faith that, for those that embodied it and shared it with me, and I'm grateful for them. Uh, these were very personal things. Mm -hmm. And so I was being challenged, I think in some sense, because there was, I'm hesitant to use this language. And I want to, so when I, when I say what I'm, what I'm about to say, hear it in a generous um, tone and not in the sense of trying to condemn, but in the sense of just trying to observe something. Um, There was something broken in that. Broken in and what? There was something broken in those ways of identifying the faith as deeply tied to these cultural moments. Hmm. And what was broken in it, I think, I can say retrospectively, is an inability, partly because of the way that the faith had developed 
in these trajectories and an ability to be able to recognize that not all gambling is the same thing. Not all drinking is the same thing. Not all dancing is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So when they were reacting to a particular kind of particular kind of dancing, let's say, that they saw as this hypersexual thing that would, you know, that was leading people, leading their children into ways that um, they found to be diminishing of God's creation. Um, I'll, I'll generously and charitably say there was a theological work at play within them where they're trying to imagine a life that was better than what was around them, right? Hmm. I'll, I'll stay away from the value judgments as to whether they were overreacting yeah. or underreacting, or, yeah. just to be generous there. But they didn't see it as that, as a moment within history, as a conversation in a place. They saw it as a steadfast rule, which I think was in some sense built into their understanding of the faith. That what the faith is, is not a narrative given to us, a narrative that's reflected ultimately into the very person of the incarnate Jesus in time, in space, as a Jewish man, as a fulfillment of a covenant made with a people created out of nothing, right? There was no Israel and then God made them. And then a movement from that to take that to the ends of the earth to say, you don't have to be Jews. You can be Gentile and still be just as much a follower of Jesus, right? Um, that narrative character of it had been translated into a propositional doctrinal moment that was deliberately abstracted. Interesting. Okay. And deliberately abstracted because it's a tradition, whether we talk about Plato and Aristotle way back then or Kant in the modern age that valued that kind of abstracting as a superior form of truth telling Mm. that which is untouched by the changing vicissitudes of time and space Mm. Um, which is a funny one to me frankly because i see that really good movement of taking jesus into let's say a greek philosophical context or eventually into a a german idealist or rationalist context or whatever Um, as a, as a good movement, but it was a failed recognition that they were what one theologian calls second readers, mm-hmm. that there was something already there within an environment, and they already did have to wrestle with what does it mean for us to invite new people in who are not us. And so because there was that, that broken sense or that very limited sense of what the Christian faith was, that it wasn't drawing ourselves into a narrative, that it was a conversation between narratives now, but rather that it was a letting go of that for something that transcends narrative. Yeah. There was an inability to reflect, right, in that kind of way so that it was just dancing. Dancing's evil. And that's where I think that early version of Christianity hurt my reflection. Hmm. But because it it wasn't to the deep, right, it was a tarp over me. It wasn't just, you know, that's where I say it didn't really affect me in some kind of deeply personal way to say it's okay to let go of that um, in a way that some of my my friends um, were having really strong reactions that cut deep to their person and bringing out reactions of, frankly, hatred um, in a way that I just thought, yeah, I don't, I just don't agree anymore, but I don't know that I feel hatred, you know? I love the metaphor of the early form of Christianity, it it did not cut to the deep. So that raises the question, 
what would it mean for the Christian faith to cut to the deep for Asian American Christians? So that's kind of the, the big setup. Right. Let's, I want to drill down into, because I know you have kids. Um, you, you had to pick them up from school earlier today. And we were talking about, you know, the holidays coming up and they're going to be at home. What is your hope for your children when it comes to these two identities being yeah. Indian American and being Christian? And what would it mean for them to have those identities cut to the deep? Yeah, great question. I hope that they don't go through what I went through, mm. where they feel like, well, there's the Indian things that happen there and they can never join with the American things or the Canadian things. My wife's Canadian. Mm. Um, and I hope vice versa as well, that they don't think that there has to be some sort of maintenance of some pure identities within them and they have to be torn between them. Um, I hope that they can embrace being an Indian, embrace being a Canadian, embrace being American without having to dilute it by saying I'm one third Canadian, right? I'm one third Indian. Like, no, you're, I'll, I'll use Brian Bantam's um, wonderful book where he talks about, no, just as Jesus was fully human and fully man, or sorry, fully human and fully God, um, he wants to speak parallelly about identities and that, that, that can be cultural. I'd say, no, you're fully Indian. You're just articulating being Indian within your moment and place. And to do that well, especially in interaction and in, in, in encounter with Jesus, is to begin to, to wrestle with the, the anchor, right? Where Jesus is Jesus. So we're not talking about some rampant relativism here, right? That, that, that point of origination is the same, but the destination point in some sense, sense is different, right? Because you have to wrestle with what that looks like here. Every bit as much as in Antioch, they had to wrestle with what does it mean to be followers of Jesus from outside of the Jewish setting, you know? Um, so ways in which we do that is, and I know this is a contested one within the Indian Christian community. Um, I want them to be able to see things like Diwali, um, which you could call the Indian Christmas mm -hmm. in terms of the most important holiday for Indians. Um, as something that says something deeply meaningful that actually can testify to Jesus, can be, a, can be a point of departure in a good sense to get to Jesus. Um, we're doing Advent readings. We do that every year leading up to Christmas. And it was a joyful moment where, where my oldest said, this one reminds me of Diwali because it was about lighting candles. And he was making those connections. So to me, that's, I hope that continues and that they can do that in a way in which they don't feel torn. Um, you know, sometimes we have to go through things in order to have a deeper appreci appreciation for something. So maybe they have to feel torn in order to get to a deeper place. But my hope is they can encounter a version of Christianity that um, is anchored to Jesus and yet is able to see how being anchored to Jesus precisely makes space for languages and cultures to be transfigured from within. And if we can do that, then... I feel like I've done my job to not allow them to have to repeat the negative slide to get to the positive. Um, beyond that is up to them, I guess. Ajish Pharma, that is an incredible note to end on. I, I feel like this grounding in Jesus that doesn't require us to choose one culture over another or to give up 
our Canadianness or our Indian Americanness is is one of the goals of the Center for Asian American Christianity is to create spaces for these kinds of conversations where we can begin to imagine an Asian American Christianity that encourages the next generation, such as uh, your children and, and my child. So thank you for taking the time um, to share these uh, incredible reflections that really do cut to the deep of both our Asian American and our Christian identities. Thanks for your time, Ashish. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure as always. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.